0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's podcast comes in two parts. First, I'm going to be talking to Helen Thompson and Gary Gerstel about one-term US presidencies. And then we're going to be talking about the first presidential debate. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk, and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me/slash talk. That's lrb.me/slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. We're recording this first part on Tuesday afternoon, so we don't know what's going to happen tonight, early hours of this morning UK time, in the first debate between Trump and Biden. We have to assume anything could happen, and that's why we're going to pick this bit of it up tomorrow. But we wanted to do a little bit of history first, because one feature of this election is that it raises the possibility of something quite rare happening in American politics it doesn't often happen that a president only serves one term and then is ejected from office at the hands of the voters rather than the various other ways that American presidents can sometimes leave office. So Gary, it's only happened three times in the last hundred years by my count. Herbert Hoover, presidency from 29 to 33. Jimmy Carter, 77 to 81. George H.W. Bush, 89 to 93 so that's only three times in more than a 100 years. It is quite rare. Why is it so rare do you think?
1: Well let me add one other president tossed out after one term to your list which comes more than a 100 years but not that far and that's William Howard Taft who was defeated in 1912 after one term. I think the power of incumbency is is, is great. the power of the White House is great, I think. There's a tendency to give a president who's elected a chance to execute his policies over two terms. So rejection after one term is considered to be a black mark, and we don't honor the presidents who have served only one term. So the the advantage of incumbency is considerable. The two elections that I think matter the most, and this is the reason I, I brought up Taft Taft is one and Hoover is the other. Taft lost because he had a challenger, not just in the primaries, but in the general election in the person of Theodore Roosevelt. We also have to bring into consideration here George H.W. Bush's loss in 1992, also because there was a challenger in the general election in the form of Ross Perot. Absent those general election challengers, Both these men would have been elected for a second term. In other words, George H.W. Bush would have beat Clinton, and Taft would have beat Wilson in the 1912 election. And that means that the two most relevant predecessor cases for thinking about now are first Herbert Hoover turned out in 1932, and then Jimmy Carter turned out in 1980. Their third party challenges were not significant. And what's interesting about those two moments and those two presidents is that both men were in office when an extraordinary calamity hit the Great Depression of 1929 and what we might call the earlier Great Recession of the 1970s. Uh, Both demonstrated an inability while in office to get control of that emergency and that economic crisis. Both were attempting to apply old toolkits, which weren't working. Both were seen to be flailing. And that offers actually a quite instructive precedent for what is going on now during the pandemic, uh, where Trump is flailing in terms of dealing with the coronavirus. And if he is turned out of office on November 3rd, I think the principal reason will be the economic calamity that struck America. So in that way, very similar to Carter and Hoover
0: one difference between Carter and Hoover, and there are lots of ways we could play this game, but I'll just give you one. So Carter faced a very serious primary challenge from Teddy Kennedy, Edward Kennedy. He won the Democratic nomination, but it went all the way to the convention. And George H.W. Bush also faced a challenge, Pat Buchanan. It wasn't such a serious challenge, but it showed that he was vulnerable. Hoover didn't, and Trump hasn't. I always thought one of the sort of broad brush rules of American politics was Presidents might be in trouble if they face a primary challenge as sitting presidents, because it's a sign the party might be divided. And Trump doesn't have that, but Hoover didn't have it as well. hell, I don't know which of these ones you want to pick up on, but Hoover seemed to think that the only way he could win was to hope that divisions in the Democratic Party were greater than divisions in the Republican Party. He turned out to be wrong. and that one is the one that looks closest to me to the Trump case, so no primary challenge great national disaster, hope that the Democratic Party was ideologically divided, turned out he was wrong.
1: Yes, I think that is a good precedent. But I think in addition to considering intra-party divisions, which uh, were very significant in the Democratic Party of the early 30s and very significant in the late 70s, in addition to that, uh, we have to consider the state of the economy. And the state of the economy is a big predictor of the ability of presidents to win second terms. And so as we think about this, I would elevate the state of the economy to being on par even greater than intra-party divisions. The intra-party divisions within the Democratic Party during Hoover's time were extreme. In 1924, they had to go 103 ballots, 10-day in a non-air-conditioned Madison Square Gardens to choose the nominee. The big division was between the Northern ethnic Catholics and Jews and the Southern white Protestants, Catholicism and Judaism versus Protestantism was was a huge divide. That's why Hoover was banking on these divisions, and he had used those divisions to elevate himself into office in 1928. But those divisions count for less during a moment of economic crisis. And I think that's part of what Trump is, the trouble he's facing now. He's trying to pump up the the cultural divisions within the, in the Democratic Party the very serious divisions between the left and the center of the Democratic Party. What's been interesting is that he's been unable to do that. And so in that respect, the Hoover precedent is instructive. I also think it's relevant for Carter. Again, the example of a president flailing in office, whatever he tries doesn't seem to work, the economy continuing to decline. An example of, of a president unable in the most elementary sense to to master the economy and to bring prosperity back to America. I think that if Biden wins, that will be the key to his victory.
2: Well, I think you have to sort of bring something else in other than just the issue of incumbency and the issue of whether there's a a challenge within the party or not on third party candidates, because these are symptoms as much as causes. What's striking about the Hoover case and the Carter cases, is, is that they both look like they're a, a turning point in presidential cycles in terms of which party is most likely to win an election. So if you go back to like the, the Taft case in, in 1912, it's actually a democratic interlude between a succession of Republican victories, though that is also obviously much more complicated by the fact that there are self-proclaimed progressive forces both in the Republican Party and in the, in the Democratic Party. The 1932 election is obviously, you know, like a a huge changing point in the presidential cycles. You know, this long ascendancy of the Republican Party at presidential level is um, over and the Democrats win the presidency by a landslide. They dominate in Congress for actually significantly beyond the point from when the Republicans start winning um, the presidency again. And in 1980 is also a, a turning point. Now, in part, obviously, that depends how you read the Nixon, the two Nixon victories. So I would say is, is what's striking really about where we are now is, is that this election is coming, leaving the pandemic and the economics of the pandemic aside for the moment at a point where there isn't clearly a dominant party. Most of the elections of the last 20 years or so have been quite tight. To some extent, Obama breaks that, but it's really about turnout in both cases. So you would expect, I think, more likelihood of one-term presidencies when there isn't a dominant presidential political party. and I think that's where we are now and actually if you go back to the 19th century you can see them you know one-term presidencies quite a number before the civil war and after the civil war because that question about which the dominant party isn't isn't also likewise resolved
1: go well, i think helen is is onto something really interesting and it makes the case of taft in 1912 even more interesting helen is absolutely right that 1932 and 1980 signified profound shifts in political orders in the united states in the first case from republican to democrat and in the second case from democrat to republican shifts that were going to last for a very long time taft is the interlude the interesting question is if biden were to win does it signify a profound shift in the relationship of the two parties to each other or will it be seen itself as an interlude or as just one more moment in an indecisive set of political choices and political alignments in american politics We just don't know at this point. And of course, in 1932 and 1980, no one knew that these were profound transition points in the political orders that would govern American life. And that is really one of the interesting and tantalizing questions about this election. If Biden wins, is it significant beyond his election or uh, is it just an interlude? We just don't know the answer to that right now.
0: Gary, you mentioned that there are just straightforward incumbency advantages there are, I think, in any political system if you're in power, if you're in office, there are things you can do which are much harder to do in opposition. So one power that American presidents have never had, British prime ministers used to have, was over timing. So that the election happens on a preordained day, British prime ministers used to be able to pick their moment. The Fixed-term Parliament Act sort of took that away. So American presidents don't have that, but they do have other things they can do. So we're going to come on to the big one in a second, which is picking people for the Supreme Court at a time as it turns out now, perhaps, of their choosing. But other things too, and Helen mentioned the fact that the last 20 years, turnout has been absolutely key. And we have a president in Trump who, part of his strategy, I think, he famously said, last time, we don't have a get out the vote campaign, we have a suppress the vote campaign, or his people said it. Do American presidents have powers that we should take seriously to not interfere with the process, but maybe to tilt the process in their own favor? Because if they do, Trump's going to use them.
1: Yes. Well, one feature that distinguishes the American system from the British system is that the president is not just head of a party, he's head of state. Uh, and in Britain, those two roles are divided between the head of the party and, and the king or queen. And as head of state, a president is accorded a level of respect, which I don't think a prime minister on, a, on his or her own can achieve as easily. Trump, like all incumbent presidents, can use the White House. Uh, There's the famed Rose Garden strategy that several presidents running for re-election have used, the backdrop of the uh, White House, the backdrop of the Rose Garden, getting on television or media every day to gobble up media time to shape people's opinions, perhaps passing laws or executive orders that increase The turnout, perhaps having a foreign policy coup, perhaps using some information to interfere with operations of the executive branch. So the incumbent has, these are not formal powers, I would say they are more informal powers, a bully pulpit, so to speak, uh, which a challenger does not have. One of the interesting things about this election is that, of course, I don't know how much you're seeing this in the UK. But Trump has been on television every day for hours, it seems. And I would say he has not used his incumbency to very good effect. He has not handled the briefings about the pandemic very well. He is all about increasing the turnouts, increasing his base. He has done almost nothing to try and bring in other people who might add to his base, which he needs to do in order to win the election. So even though it's been Trump, Trump, Trump in the news so much of the time, it's not clear that he's been able to use that to his great advantage. And one of the signs of this is that he's been trying to pin all kinds of weaknesses and frailties and charges of corruption on Biden, including hiding in his basement and not campaigning at all. And and Biden, for a presidential candidate, has been relatively invisible, and it doesn't seem to have hurt him at all. Uh, It seems as though he's executing a -a rope-a-dope strategy of letting Trump punch himself out and some of that may be succeeding.
2: I think there's a really interesting issue though that comes out of the Carter case, which is is that if you'd asked Jimmy Carter, I think, I think if you asked him back then in nineteen eighty, and if you asked him now, he'd say that incumbency was the disadvantage that he had in nineteen eighty. Because he was not only presiding over an economy that actually was incredibly difficult to do anything about because the forces that were causing the economic disruption were well beyond the you know, control of the American president. But he was having to deal with the Iranian hostage crisis too. And obviously, it would seem that the people around Reagan were involved in in trying to do some deal with the Iranians prior to the election that would allow the, the hostages to come back. And the fact that Carter wasn't able to do that by election day was something that worked profoundly to his disadvantage. Because, I mean, I know this partly goes back against what I was saying earlier, because 1980 clearly was a turning point. But if you go right the way into September of 1980, it's not absolutely clear at all that Reagan's going to win that election.
1: Well, Helen first brings up a really interesting point about the use of the opposition party of foreign influence and power. And there's very little doubt that Reagan was trying to use the Iran hostage crisis to to damage Carter. And there are even indications that there may have been an informal agreement with the Iranians not to release the hostages until the election had occurred and Carter left office. Another example of that is 1968, where there's now pretty good evidence that Nixon was in touch with the North Vietnamese trying to scuttle uh, what might've been a Johnson peace plan for the sake of not letting Johnson succeed and thus tilting the election to Humphrey. So in those two cases, we're not used to considering the opposition using foreign power to buttress their case because we're so focused on Trump using the power of Russia to promote his case. Uh, but this is something that presidents have used in the past, and it shows you that presidential aspirants are willing to use whatever is within, in their grasp or reach. The prize is so great, they, in many instances, will stop at nothing. I still do think that the the size of the economic calamity in both Carter and Hoover's case is very relevant here. And also this picks up on David's point about timing and presidents not being able to, to choose the timing. I think both Carter and Hoover got hit by an economic crisis for which the country was not prepared, for which there were not good solutions, and during which there was a lot of flailing. So I think that even absent the hostage crisis, Carter probably would have been edged out of office because of the size of the economic calamity that had come over the United States. And in this respect, the Hoover president is relevant, and I think plays into what may happen with Trump as well.
0: So I think we should wait till after the debate before we talk about whether history is no guide at all here, because maybe this election is unique in all sorts of ways, because we don't know what's going to happen tonight. we got two unusual candidates not least because of their age, but something which is also very distinctive about this election, which has happened in the past week. But Gary, I'd be really interested to know whether you think that there are useful historical analogies here, is the looming Supreme Court battle to replace Ginsburg with Barrett and the ways in which the Republican Party might just hold together in order to allow that to happen in the Senate and what consequence that might have for the election. Before we get on to the details of now, is there anything in modern presidential history to compare to this kind of battle this close to a presidential election fought out over such a consequential issue?
1: No. Uh, I didn't think so. I just wanted to check. There's never been a Supreme Court justice uh, uh, appointed and confirmed. First, in such a brief interval, and then so close to the election. And also, we have the unprecedented circumstances beginning in 2016, when the Senate, controlled by Mitch McConnell, declared that he would refuse to consider Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, because no nominee should be considered in the last year of a president's term of office. And he made a very principled case about that in 2016. And now, of course, he's completely turned around made up some fictitious excuse to try and cover his you-know-what, but no one really believes it. It's just an example of rank hypocrisy in terms of their behavior and, and a very cold and powerful power play, and their willingness to do this reveals the stakes of this this battle. The Republicans have been trying to secure a conservative majority on the court since the mid-1980s. They should have achieved it a long time ago, but they've appointed people they now consider to be apostates, people who have pledged themselves to conservative values. And McConnell is pursuing this at all costs. He wants it to be his legacy. He's got no real legislation to point to during his term as majority leader of the Senate. Uh, But for the Republican Party, increasingly a minority party in American life, increasingly unable to win majorities at the polls, They think their future lies with controlling the Supreme Court. And if Amy Barrett is confirmed, as I think she will be, they look forward to a kind of control and values and free market economy that they have been pursuing for 40 years. What's interesting is that it's not at all clear that this helps Trump get elected, as Trump thinks it will. The majority of Americans think it's the wrong thing to do. McConnell is actually pursuing a strategy that I think is going to harm Trump in the general election. This has not really been brought out very clearly in the news. And it's a sign of the ferocity with which the Republicans are pursuing the saying that they are determined to do this even at the cost of the presidency and perhaps at the cost of controlling the Senate.
2: I mean, I think that it is pretty hard to think of any kind of parallel. And I I think it it speaks to the fact, as Gary's suggested, of how central control of the Supreme Court has become to both political parties. It's the it's the one thing, I think, that's still relatively uniting within the factional struggles within both of the political parties. It's the one thing... I mean, I think this is where I slightly disagree with the Gary's, is that it, it, it's the one thing that Trump can claim to in terms of appealing to non-Trumpian Republican voters to say that he did what he said he would do, which was to appoint conservative justices to the court. And although it's already clear that what that means in practice and the ways in which these justices decide decisions is more complicated than simply saying that they're conservative or liberal, it's not clear what else, even before the pandemic, Trump had that potentially held the Republican electoral coalition that he assembled together and i think that it's even more important once we get into the fact that we are have had a pandemic and it has delivered very sharp unemployment in america though not as high as it was in april that his ability to hold the the rust belt states that were central to his victory last time is much 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 more difficult than it was so as if we go back to sort of you know, this time last year and you were seeing these polls coming out of places like Michigan saying, "And answer to that question, do you feel you're better off than you were four years ago? The question that Reagan had actually asked Carter back in 1980 in one of the debates you were getting numbers in the 60s in Michigan or Pennsylvania. That was all very good news for Trump, but obviously in terms of his election projects, but obviously an awful lot has changed since then. And what has he got left to try to keep enough of that electoral coalition together, but going hard on the Supreme Court. Not least, I think, as well, because except for the absolute never Trumpers, the court is still something that fundamentally matters to a lot of Republican voters who really dislike Trump.
0: Gary, your point is really interesting. So I started by saying that one of the historical disanalogies here is that Trump didn't face a primary challenge. And I think there are lots of reasons for that, not least, because people saw how it went in 2016. But this battle over the Supreme Court skillfully handled by the opposition could bring out divisions within the Republican Party. I think what you and Helen say could both be right, that it is the great unifier, this fight for both parties, and yet it does at least potentially open up a gap between Republican Party interests and Donald Trump's personal interest in being re-elected, which is his primary interest. Who knows how it's going to go? But do you think that there are ways in which the fight itself, the process in the Senate, could allow Democrats to open up that McConnell-Trump divide? Is that where Republican disunity might reveal itself?
1: Well, I've been trying to imagine scenarios where that might take effect. Have <laughs> you got any? It's hard to do. I have one. Uh, okay. I don't. I don't know how. I don't know how I don't know, how. I don't know how plausible it is uh, because her confirmation by the Senate is is assured. Uh, But what if Democrats press the case prominently, not over abortion and not over the Affordable Care Act, health care in the U.S., which are their two leading line of attacks? And what if they say, listen, we all know that the reason Trump is rushing this through is because his best chance of getting elected, given the polls going against him and the voting likely to go against him, is to throw this into the courts, court challenges, throw out questionable ballots, it will end up in the lap of the Supreme Court. That is his best hope. That's why he's pursuing this with so much ardor, I would say even more so than increasing his base, because it's not clear to me how this is going to increase his base, although it may increase turnout if that has been lagging. So suppose several Democrats put this question to Amy Barrett. You're well qualified for the court. We will support you on one condition that you recuse yourself if you are confirmed by or right after the election from ruling on anything having to do with the legitimacy of the election itself. And it'll be very interesting to see what she says in that regard. And I think there Trump and McConnell have different interests. Trump's interest is to say, absolutely, you must weigh in because Justice Roberts, the chief justice of, of the Supreme Court, has carefully mapped out a strategy that allows him to have a, I would say, a bipartisan coalition on the Supreme Court to make sure the court does not get caught as it was caught in Bush versus Gore in 2000, just a, a rank partisan majority to push Bush into office. He's worked very hard and successfully at that. He, if Barrett takes her seat on the court and votes, it blows that strategy to smithereens. So it's possible that if Barrett is put on the spot and asked to say, I I will recuse myself or I won't, if she says she will recuse herself, McConnell's not going to care because he doesn't really care whether Trump gets elected or not. I don't think in his heart what he wants is a secure judicial system and a Supreme Court that has got to rule in the Republican Party's favor for the next 30, 40 years. That will be enough for him. But that will not be enough for Donald Trump, who understands that his best chance of getting reelected is to throw this election to the Supreme Court. And for that reason, he desperately wants Barrett voting in his favor. It will be delicious, actually, to see McConnell versus Trump fight this out. I think if the Democrats put this question, there is a chance that Mitt Romney may reconsider and that he may be able to pull one other Republican with them. So suppose this question posed to the Republican majority peels off another two Republicans, meaning they have four Republicans, meaning they have enough to deny Barrett's confirmation unless she agrees to recuse herself. That's the one scenario where I think the Democrats may win the election, even as they lose the court, which I think is a foregone conclusion.
0: Helen, can I put you the bigger blunter question, which is, so there there are these general rules, and one of which is a united party tends to defeat a divided party. And I think you can spin it both ways in this election, which is the more united party and which is the more divided party. But there's a lot that could happen between now and the day of the election itself, although obviously the day doesn't count in quite the way it used to because of the different ways in which people can vote, to highlight divisions within the parties. Do you think that there is a possibility that come election day, the Republicans will look more divided than the Democratic Party?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think the Republican Party is more divided than the, the Democratic Party in this crucial respect around the election is, is uh, enough people in the Republican Party establishment wish Donald Trump wasn't the candidate. I don't think that's necessarily true in the, the Democratic Party. There may be lots of Democrat activists and some individual members of the US Congress, those who were elected um more recently, who would have much preferred a more left candidate than what Joe Biden represents. But I think that the the portion of the Republican Party establishment that still loathes Trump is is pretty strong. And I think for that reason there is something in the argument that Gary's putting me. You know, I don't think Mitch McConnell is any fan of Donald Trump. And I think that from his point of view, that you know a Biden presidency isn't necessarily a party disaster for the um, Republicans. So it would obviously depend on the, if you like, the what came with it, so to speak, in terms of the way in which Trump responded and what kind of conflict that there might be in the in the Supreme Court. I think the issue on the Democrat side is, is, well, if Joe Biden is to does win, then what kind of presidency is it going to be? And then I think that you will see a very considerable struggle within the Democratic Party about the direction that this presidency is, is supposed to take. And yet it will be complicated by the fact that a good part, I would imagine, of a Biden presidency in its early days is going to be preoccupied with foreign policy questions.
0: And Gary, one last thing before we, as it were, pause and then see what happens in the debate. And we haven't talked about Trump's taxes, but I assume Biden might just raise it tonight. So we'll have a chance to talk about that tomorrow. But to go back to those historical parallels, and it's a point that you and Helen have both made about the relative closeness of electoral politics at present. So those four historical examples where a sitting president after one term is rejected at the ballot box. In each case, it was a decisive rejection. So there were contingencies, third party or independent candidates, and so on. But the results were not particularly close. I remember James Baker tried to pretend that George H.W. Bush had been defeated in a squeaker by Bill Clinton, but it wasn't close. Reagan decisively beat Carter. Roosevelt decisively beat Hoover. uh, Wilson decisively uh, won in 1916. This one is almost certainly going to be closer than that. And for all the reasons that we've talked about, That means I think probably there isn't a parallel. Would you agree? I mean, Biden could win in a blowout. But if it's close, all those anxieties people have about the advantages of incumbency, not least you are sitting, you are squatting in the Oval Office. And by you, I mean Trump. That's something for which there is no parallel.
1: Yes, yes. Although it's still not inconceivable that Trump will be shellacked in the election on November 3rd. We just don't know. The, the polls are, are all over the place. Most of them are predicting a Biden victory, but they range from a squeaker to a shellacking. And here we have to remember that 1932, 1980, the shellacking was not really apparent to anybody until it actually happened. So we can't remove that from consideration. The power of incumbency that I fear the most is something else which would be unprecedented, and that is Trump's refusal to leave office. When he's defeated. And I I mean that in a variety of ways. I mean, the voting goes for Biden, but on election eve, because more Republicans are going to vote in person than Democrats who are voting by mail, Trump may have the advantage. There are thousands of lawyers who have already been deputized to go to polling places throughout the country to make these arguments. They're going to try and send it to the Supreme Court. They're going to try and win that way. And even if they lose there, my worry is his refusal to to leave office. It's a different kind of power of incumbency. It's asserting what no other president has ever asserted, which is that there is no separation between me, the incumbent and the office. I am here. I am Donald Trump. I am president. uh, I am born to lead. It is that power of incumbency that at this point that I fear the most. If I had confidence that the ballots would be counted, honestly, I feel pretty good about the outcome of the election. But I also fear that this may be the most chaotic election in America and most destructive since 1876, which marked the end of Reconstruction. That was a holy mess. That's a discussion for another day. But one of the aspects of that election that distinguishes that moment from this moment is that the parties ultimately decided to compromise rather than install two presidents in office at the same time. And it's not clear that Trump would be willing to put party and nation above himself
0: but Helen that does then touch on that point about divisions within the Republican Party I mean we've already had hints of it from McConnell and others that on this question they are not going to side with Trump if he loses he's on his own
2: I think it's inconceivable that they would side with Trump in such circumstances
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. Helen I'm sorry you said you find it inconceivable yeah
2: it's as inconceivable as anything can be in politics at the moment, which is obviously presents caveats are necessary, to imagine that the Republican Party establishment would stand with Donald Trump in refusing to leave the presidency.
1: I think the question is, what is the Republican Party establishment after four years of Trump? And a large part of the Republican Party establishment is Donald Trump or his lieutenants. So I don't have the same confidence in the Republican Party as you do, Helen. I hope you're right and I'm wrong.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: Not to engage in any civil unrest, and will you pledge tonight that you will not declare victory? until the election has been independently certified. Important question President here. Front, you I'm go urging first. my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to
0: do it. As you know today there was he a
1: big problem to in Philadelphia. They went in to watch to abide by the result. poll watchers. A very safe, very nice thing.
3: They were thrown
1: out. They weren't allowed this to watch. This is a great danger. You know why? Because bad things happen but in Philadelphia. This is not. There is no... This, is not, is no, this is Joe Biden needs a strong well. response There's, to okay. this, well, this accusation of widespread, widespread in fraud. Five states have had mail-in uh, ballots for the last decade or more. Five, including two Republican states. And you don't have to solicit the ballot. It's sent to you. It's sent to your home. What we're saying is, they're saying is that there has to be a postmark by the time, by Election Day.
3: If it doesn't get in till the 7th, 8th, 9th, it still should be counted.
2: He's just afraid of counting the votes. You're, no, wrong. The count You're wrong. You're wrong. No, I, I, I want to continue with you on I this. i love Vice President vote. Biden because Chris, he's so wrong when he makes a statement no. like
1: that. The moderator has to shut down Biden the president.
2: Biden, president Biden, the biggest problem, in fact, of all time. He said, Mr. President, uh, please, sir. Stop. I would never say that. Stop. Play it. Go ahead.
3: Mr. Vice President answered his his final question the final question is i can't remember which of all was ranting i'm, <laughs> yeah, having, a I tr- much. I'm having a little trouble myself but
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> chris uh, wallace, <laughs> wallace just made trump really bad
2: Becon- i mean the green new deal and the idea of what what your environmental changes deal. will do the green new deal
0: this is part two of today's podcast we're recording now on wednesday afternoon early evening uk time Uh, Gary and Helen are back with us. We've all, in different forms and in different time zones, seen what happened in last night's debate. Gary watched it in real time, so he can tell us what that was like, what the pain was like. I think the consensus is it wasn't a lot of fun. Um, But, Gary, you could say about that debate, I'm slightly going against the trend here, I mean, it was clearly unedifying. I don't think anyone could have enjoyed it much. But I've seen a lot of those debates, I know you have too, and they're usually... At the end of them, not particularly clarifying either. And you could say of the one last night, it was clarifying in the sense that both candidates were themselves and the difference between them was stark. The choices were stark. The stakes were laid out clearly. It was horrible. But you couldn't come away from that debate not knowing what was at stake.
1: I think you're probably right, although I'm still recovering from the pain of the spectacle itself. I've never seen a presidential debate of that sort. It was more like a worldwide wrestling mud fight than a presidential debate. The moderator, Chris Wallace, had no control. Trump, I would say, had no control. Profoundly embarrassing to America's reputation in the world, as if America needed another hit to its reputation the TV commentators I was listening to after the debate who were as appalled as I was began using the phrase shit show on cable television, which I have never heard in America in my life before. There are some hysterical moments in all this. The Japanese press was not only trying to translate three people constantly talking over each other, you can imagine that kind of nightmare, but there's some hysterical conversations about them trying to explain shit show in Japanese. So there were some funny moments to it. Uh, It was very painful to to watch. Trump tried to take over everything and bulldoze everyone in his path, refused to let the moderator talk half the time, refused to let Biden talk most of the time, did not have a clear strategy when his initial strategy was not working. I do agree with you that the, the two candidates showed themselves to be Who they are. Trump, a tremendously scary man who would stop at nothing to keep power. I think we can interpret his adrenaline rush and his aggression greater than in previous debates as evidence of his desperation that he is losing. And Biden appeared to be not the brightest bulb, but competent, humane and I would say better position than Trump to lead America in these next four years. The challenge for Trump was to figure out how to build beyond his base in some meaningful way. And I can't imagine many voters beyond his base deciding after the spectacle of last night that the country would be in good shape in his hands.
0: So let me say two things that push against that slightly. So the first is... I think we know with these debates that there's a tendency to focus on what people say. And that doesn't matter so much as how they say it. You know, they sometimes said you should watch them with the sound turned down. You should try and step outside of your expectations about what the words mean. And there is still, I think, that danger. This is the only downside I can see for Biden from last night's debate, which is his case was just that he wasn't Trump. I mean, there was very little substantive even in his personality, that made a positive case for him as Joe Biden. I agree he was decent. He was humane. He was also bumbling and stumbling. He was quite scary at moments. I thought some of his answers made no sense at all. But he was the non-Trump candidate. And I think we know that there are risks in that. Maybe it's better to be the non-Trump candidate when you're in opposition and Trump's been president for four years than when Hillary tried to do it and Trump hadn't been president. But still, I think there are some risks in that. And I think there are also some risks in the assumption that because it was a shit show, it wasn't also very clear to people that there was a real choice here. Um, I mean, the choice was stark. And I, I tend to agree that I think because Trump was behind, he didn't do much to make up the ground. But the choice is as stark as ever. And I'm not totally sure that making the choice stark necessarily works to Biden's favor. Those are my two doubts. And Trump made the choice really stark.
1: Yes, I think uh, Trump would have been better advised to keep his aggressions somewhat under control. I agree with you that Biden did not offer much of a convincing case for the actual content of his policies, except he would be an alternative temperamentally to Trump. I think he made that point. But I think Trump would have been better served by simply letting Biden speak more than he did, uh, because I think that would have led to more bumbling and it would have exposed the hollowness of some of Biden's positions. I think it's telling that Trump found himself unable to do that. And because he was unable to do that, he missed a very important opportunity. Even some of his, his advisors and supporters saying he was way too hot and went way too far. And one has difficulty finding too much fault with Biden simply because most of the time he wasn't allowed to speak. Now, if you want a very vigorous president who bulldozes every everybody and everything in his way and shows a rather remarkable level of vigor for a 74-year-old, then Trump's your man but I think he also revealed something monstrous about himself. I think he revealed something about his, his true self. Uh, and he, uh, he had to do more than he accomplished last night. The debate, the contest had been set in terms of Biden presenting himself as a non-Trump. And Trump had to do more to expose Biden as either demented or a creature of the Democratic Party left, or a creature of his family's corruption. So it's not as though he had no strategic instincts about how to go after Biden, but he was so wired and so over the top that I think he, in a, in a very important way, led Biden off the hook.
0: Helen, do you think that Trump was chaos last night? I mean, you've talked about this before. I mean, he was he has at various points been the candidate of chaos. Was he chaos last night?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you could look at it this way and say that if there was some rationale to his incredibly aggressive tactics, it was, and in this sense, you might say he succeeded, was to drag Biden down into chaos, because the overriding impression of the debate was chaos. Now, I think if, if you go back to the sort of beginning of the year, in some sense, Trump was Wanting to run a little bit more on the order side this time, having been the chaos candidate back in 2016, obviously he's better temperamentally suited to chaos than he is to order. But his basic positioning, where order was concerned, relied on being able to have have, having delivered on the you know a new U.S.-China trade deal and the the economy. And in some ways, the beginning of the year, you know, he was in a good position on both of those. And I think at the beginning of the year, there were pretty good reasons to think that he had at least a 50 percent chance of of winning this um, election. But the pandemic itself has obviously introduced chaos into the election. His response to the pandemic has been chaotic. He then ended up with a, a Democrat candidate who is being presented as someone who can restore order to the republic now. To my mind, you know, Biden's a strange symbol for restoration of order in some ways, but in some senses the fact he's quite a benign personality makes that easier than it might from other aspects of Biden's both life as a 78-year-old man and his political position within the, the Democratic Party. So if there is any rhyme or reason to what Trump was doing, and I have got my doubts, it would be that he has now dragged Biden down into Trump's chaos
0: Gary, were you persuaded when Trump tried to, as you say, paint Biden as a creature of the left, and Biden said, no, I'm the candidate, I won, I beat Bernie, this is my party now, this is my Democratic Party, I am the Democratic Party, he more or less said at one point. It rang a bit hollow to me. Did it ring hollow to you, or did you buy it?
1: It rang a bit hollow to me, but I think Trump uh, should have given Biden more opportunity to talk. He should have pressed him with questions rather than denunciations. He should have looked for ways to widen the gap between Biden and his left. That gap is real in the Democratic Party. But Biden was ready for that line of attack, and he was very clear that he does not support defund the police. He came out surprisingly strongly against the Green New Deal, saying the Biden plan is something else. I think that's got to get him into trouble with the left of the Democratic Party, and we'll have to watch that fall out to see if they become less enthusiastic in terms of turning out their troops on Election Day. But I don't think Trump was successful in exposing Biden as a creature of the left of the Democratic Party. And I think here Biden's campaign has been quite sophisticated. Insisting right from the beginning that they do not support to fund the police, they will not tolerate violence in cities, that his health plan is not Bernie Sanders' health plan. I think he was ready for that and he handled those challenges quite well. And that probably deepened Trump's sense of desperation. And he then pivoted to attacking. Biden's family and his sons, I don't think that will be received very well. We can go into the details of that if, if, you, if, if you wish. I just let's, don't think- Let's it, not. Let's leave it. Uh, I, I just don't think this has been an ongoing problem for the Trump campaign. They have not been able to pin a label on Biden. I think sleepy Biden is dead. They have found nothing as effective as crooked Hillary. Trump, at his most effective, is when he he finds an epithet of that sort that he can hurl at people that becomes damning and that defines that person. And I think Biden was elusive enough yesterday. You may chalk it up to his lack of intellect, in fact, David. uh, But I think he remained an elusive target for Trump. And I think that deepened consciously or unconsciously Trump's desperation. And so I don't think that what Trump needed to do last night, he was successful in doing. Uh, As I think about the future, I worry less about now the run-up to the election as I worry less about that and I worry more about the election itself and the chaos that Trump may sow for the election itself because in his desperation, this may be the only option he sees for himself to save his presidency and get another term and avoid his creditors who are gonna start demanding $420 million in payback the moment he leaves office.
0: So let's do that at the end. I've got two questions, so one is about that, but just on the run-up to the election, again, if if you, this is too crude, but if you were to say, this is not about changing people's minds and debates never change people's minds anyway, and most people aren't changeable on this, it's a turnout election, it's all about turnout. And if you just looked at last night's debate in terms of which candidate was more likely to fire up the people they need to vote, is there any case for saying that when you look at it through that frame, I'll put this to Helen, is there any case for saying if you look at it through that frame, it was less of a disaster for Trump or potentially that there were real weaknesses in in Biden's case for the people he needs to turn out to vote for him?
2: I think that you know, Biden presents some problems for people who need to vote for him in order to him for him to win, both voters who are to the, the left of him and voters who would rather vote for a Republican candidate but find it unacceptable to, to vote for Trump. And I think in this respect, what Trump did that hurt himself and helped Biden um, was that he once again, in perhaps more dramatically than he'd ever done before, made the presidency look so cheap. And in fact, I would say that he actually dragged Biden into that problem in terms of when you have the opposition candidate in a presidential election describing the president as a clown, you're not doing anything to help the offices of the presidency. And so I think that the more that Trump makes such an overt display of basically demeaning the office of president, the harder it makes it for him to hold on to those voters who don't really want to vote for Biden at all and are quite worried about where a Biden presidency might get dragged from the left of the Democratic Party to say, look, we really can accept Donald Trump being president. And I do think that the the aversion factor is, you know, is pretty important here. I think that the aversion factor to Hillary Clinton was what won Trump last time rather than Trump's positive appeal to a base to use that language and it question again is is like which of the candidates is the one to which most people find it unacceptable for that person to be president and so far as Trump has already got a, a big issue around that he played up to that last night and I think that then becomes his his weakness but I do think he dragged Biden into the chaos of demeaning the presidency with him
0: and Gary, we did get a clear answer from Trump. I mean, he gave a few clear answers, actually, not particularly attractive answers, but clear answers. And one was on the thing that we talked about yesterday, which is, does he want a Supreme Court with Barrett on it to get involved in the messy business, potentially, of deciding which votes count? And he said, absolutely, I do. I, that's what I want. So you said yesterday that that was potentially a space in which Trump and the Republican Party can be separated from each other. So I don't think Biden did that last night. But Trump's answer was a very clear one. He wants, and maybe in some sense, he needs that court. Did you hear anything last night that gave you more confidence that as we move through the Senate hearings on Barrett's potential elevation to the Supreme Court, that that gap could be exploited? That the things Trump said last night were themselves fuel to that fire?
1: My sense is that quite a number of establishment Republicans were deeply alarmed by Trump's performance last night. And usually after these debates, the partisans rush to their microphones and their reporters and they try and spin a victory for their man and woman. That, that did not happen last night. And that's the first time in a long time that that did not happen. And I think the idea has to be percolating in the mind of Mitch McConnell, for example, the majority leader of the Senate, that the Republic can't afford this man having another term, and they have gotten just about as much as they can out of him, especially with this third Supreme Court appointment. And it is conceivable to me that there will be some kind of uh, scheming on the part of a group of People around Mitch McConnell to get this thrown into the Supreme Court, but to imagine a conservative Supreme Court majority that denies Trump the election that he so ardently desired. It would be a shocking event if that would happen. It would, it would be counterintuitive.
0: Would it be a healing event? I mean, would a conservative Supreme Court making Joe Biden president
1: heal the republic? I don't think it would heal the republic, but it would legitimate what McConnell has accomplished by stealing, one could argue, two Supreme Court seats. It would surround the Supreme Court with an aura of legitimacy that it otherwise would not have. And that would position it to deny the progressive coalition in America, which is quite strong, the ability to pass legislation that would pass muster for the court. And I can imagine McConnell and other people saying, two years out of office won't be so bad. We'll have the Supreme Court to protect us. It is our crucial counter-majoritarian institution. We have been pursuing this majority for 40 years. We've got it now. It gives us some breathing room. We do have to re-legitimate this court. And having this court hand the victory to Biden would be one way of doing that. You could imagine that as a kind of healing but it also becomes a preparation for the next stage in the kind of chess battle that the Republicans have been playing for a long period of time. And I will say also that I think John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, has been scheming along these lines for six or eight months now. He very much wants to re-legitimate the Supreme Court. And I think it's possible McConnell might be open to that, although for more cynical reasons, as a way of perpetuating Republican Party influence in a country that is no longer willing to give them a majority of votes. Uh, So healing could come out of this, but it may just be a pause before the next round of a very bitter bitter battle begins.
0: And Helen, finally, did you hear anything last night that made you feel the risks of chaos around the election itself and its aftermath were lessened. I So that bit at the end of the debate where Trump made statements about his unwillingness to potentially accept the result, I was also quite alarmed by Biden's answer. There was just one answer to a question about when Biden tried to explain how people with mail-in ballots could make sure that these ballots weren't thrown out. And I couldn't understand what he was saying. It just gave me a little glimpse of what might be to come. Even the well-intentioned Biden sounded like he was talking gibberish at one point. Was there anything there that gave you a sense that there might be a way through and out the other side of this if it is contested and if it's closed?
2: I think it, it, it's incredibly difficult to see that there's a constructive way out if it ends up with a, a close electoral college result and then ends up in the, the Supreme Court. I mean, we should remember that actually there, you know, there, there were plenty of lawyers in place last time with the expectation that it might end up in the Supreme Court. And obviously, the reason why this is so strong in people's consciousness is because of what happened back in 2000. I find it sort of almost inconceivable to think that anything that the court could decide in the moment of a contested election, regardless of the personnel, could in any sense re-legitimate the court's authority. The court's become in, in American politics since the 1960s. In the way that which we know the courts contest, because America has a, such a deeply divided politics, and 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 that isn't going to go away at all. You know, a democratic victory in the Senate is going to lead to suggestions, you know, that there may be more justice. They might try to appoint more justices to the um, court. I mean, in the end, there has to be acceptance by everybody that elections are what determine who exercises power and I, I don't think the court can actually, other than delivering a, a legal judgment, actually help people accept that because the court itself's authority is, is far too contested for but that.
0: But to but to Gary's point, if a court which say it had Barrett on it, which was then six three conservative, gave the presidency to Biden. I mean that would would that do nothing to relegitimate it in some respects. It would be such an unusual, given what you say about what's been going on since the 60s, if the court in 2000 had made Gore the winner, that would be a very different outcome than, than making Bush the winner, if it had not voted on partisan lines. So saying this, it was not a partisan judgment.
2: But you've got to start with what the issue the court would be actually ruling on. Is it going to, would it again be a question of like federal versus state authority? Which Counting is, the, the
0: mail-in t- ballots and which letting them essentially
2: Which is essentially what it was. I mean, if it's a fairly obvious thing and where the constitutional law is clearly upholds a, a Biden victory, then you would expect that, you know, a clear majority of the justices, not a 5-4 decision to deliver that verdict. But I think trying to work out like, what the issue would be, whereby it was, it was sufficiently uncontested within the justices between the justices that it would deliver a large majority without it being something that was just fairly technical. It seems to me to be quite difficult to quite difficult to imagine.
1: Uh, there is a precedent for the kind of healing process you are looking for, David, and that's the election of 1876, and I won't go into the details here because there's no time, but it was a it was a healing moment. It was a compromise between North and South and made it possible for the country to get beyond the hor- horrible divisions of the Civil War. In one sense, it worked, but there was a very substantial cost and that the cost of the compromise was sacrificing the aspirations of African-Americans to equal rights for another 90 years. One can discern the elements of a compromise here along the lines I've suggested a Supreme Court ratifying a, a Biden election. And you could see the healing forces that would possibly come out of that. But there there are always sacrifices to be made in those compromises. And here the sacrifice would probably be the progressive agenda that a lot of Americans urgently uh, and in some cases desperately want. For themselves. So I can see an outline of a reconciliation, but one to which there is a very significant cost attached. And there is a precedent in American history for that.
0: We are, of course, going to be coming back to this incredible election. We have a couple more episodes planned before the vote, including one in which it'll just be me and Helen talking about what Donald Trump has meant to us. And we'll be doing one the morning after the night before. But next week, we're coming back to Brexit, because that is still ongoing, and there are some big deadlines coming up. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Okay, should we, should we go? Is everyone, Helen, do you want to say something? I'm. Um, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Gary.
1: I'm here. Um, yep, yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, stand, stand back, stand down.
0: Yeah. Okay, Catherine shall I just crack on. Okay, great.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen